You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Our text today, this second Sunday of Pride Month, is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch from Acts chapter 8. And let's read it now. Now, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you are reading? He replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this one. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb silent before a shearer, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, about whom may I, may I ask you? Does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along, the man, uh, the, the, uh, as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, "Look, here is water. What is to what is to prevent me from being baptized?" He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. All right, there's the story. What's going on here? What's, what's the meaning of all this? Well, in order to get that, one must understand two aspects of the historical cultural context here. First, you got to understand what a eunuch was. Eunuchs were considered a sexual variant in the ancient world, they were considered something like a third gender, neither male nor female, but something in between or something else entirely. Eunuchs, eunuchs were generally men who had been castrated at a young age in order to serve or guard women in royal palaces. They were castrated so they could be trusted. The Ethiopian eunuch, were told, served Candace, who was the queen of Ethiopia at the time, Candace was just, wasn't her first name, that was the title, it was like queen, and he was her treasurer. But what's interesting is that it appears eunuchs were not always castrated men, but people born what we call intersex, meaning born with ambiguous genitalia. It seems Jesus himself points this out in Matthew 19, which I believe I mentioned last week. Jesus says this in Matthew 19, for there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, meaning castrated men. And there are eunuchs who have been so 
who have been so from birth, probably meaning someone born intersex or with ambiguous genitalia. We know that approximately 1.7% of the population is intersex. So that means approximately 6 million people today in America are intersex. We don't know if the Ethiopian eunuch was born intersex or was castrated, but it doesn't really matter. The point is he was part of this sexual variant in the ancient world and was often mistreated as a result. And this leads me to the second aspect of the cultural context we got to understand here in order to understand the meaning of this story. Eunuchs were perceived as ritually unclean within the Hebrew tradition, which, of course, Christianity comes out of. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 23, I believe it is, says that eunuchs were unclean and could not enter the assembly of God to worship with the rest of the community. This is because they were maimed quite often, castrated, or they were born with ambiguous genitalia or abnormal features, i.e. intersex. They were abnormal in what was deemed a significant way. And anyone that was abnormal physically could not enter into the holy place, meaning the tabernacle, the temple. They could not, from the ancient Hebrew perspective, stand in the presence of God because God is holy. And that which is incomplete, unwhole, aberrant, was seen as unholy, unclean by their standards. For the same reason, men with, yeah, men with vitiligo, I have vitiligo. You can see when the rest of my skin gets tanned, the vitiligo really stands out. But it's just like white spots. I would be called leprous back then. These are technically lesions. They don't hurt. It's just an autoimmune issue. Isn't, isn't science wonderful? <laughs> we know this stuff now that they didn't know then. But it's an autoimmune issue. But because I have these white spots all over me, I would not have been allowed to be a priest back then, according to their standards of holiness and how they understood you know, physical wellness and spiritual holiness. I'm, of course, not agreeing with any of that. I want to be very clear. I'm not saying, yes, God, the creator of the universe, you know, doesn't want, you know, people to be priests or pastors if they have vitiligo. Of course not. All of this is an ancient man-made superstition, but the ancient Hebrews directly correlated their concepts of holiness and purity with these ideas of physical completeness, normalcy, putting that in scare quotes, what is normal, right? Sameness. This is also why a spotless white lamb could be sacrificed to God, had to be sacrificed to God on certain occasions. This is also why certain animals were labeled unkosher to eat in the ancient Hebrew tradition. Pigs were not kosher because they have hooves like cows, but they don't chew the cud. 
Shellfish are not kosher because they live in water like a fish does, but they, they don't swim. They don't, fin, they don't have fins and gills like fish do. They, you know, aberrant, at least from their perspective. Amphibians like frogs and turtles were not kosher to eat because, again, you know, they, they live on land and in the water. They seem to violate the boundaries of both. They, they go against the perceived natural order of things and therefore are unclean. Ritually unclean. This is probably also why same-sex sex was prohibited or looked down upon in the ancient Hebrew tradition, because it seemed to violate the perceived natural order of things. It seemed to violate boundaries. And this is also why eunuchs were excluded from spiritual community, or at least marginalized and kept in the outer courts of the tabernacle or the temple. They were labeled different incomplete, odd, or what we would call today queer. And this is what makes this story of the Ethiopian eunuch so powerful, because here we see a eunuch being welcomed into the kingdom of God, into the, into the spiritual community, being welcomed into the faith, treated as an equal. And I think that, and keep in mind, this man was also from Ethiopia, which means we might as well say this was a queer black man. So here we find a queer black man being welcomed into the faith. For early Christians who were all Jews, mind you, early Christians at this time, Book of Acts, early Book of Acts, these, these Christians were all ethnically Jewish. This is where they came out of. For early Christians who were all Jews, to welcome a eunuch into the fold was a radical move of inclusion. It was a demonstration of how the gospel shattered, obliterated all kinds of religious and social bigotry and redefined, redefined our concepts of holiness and purity. Again, keep in mind, this, this man is not just a eunuch, but he's also from Ethiopia. So here we find a queer black man being welcomed into the faith. And I think that actually uncovers the original incendiary and shocking nature of this story for us today. And it's why we're looking at it right now in Pride Month. In Pride Month. Keep in mind, this man is just coming back from Jerusalem, where we're told he went from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship. We don't know if this man was a Jew or not. Some scholars believe he was a proselyte, which means a Jewish, a, a Gentile convert to Judaism, or perhaps a, just a Gentile admirer of Judaism. But we, we know from the story that he went to Jerusalem to worship, which means he went to the temple. And at the temple, he would have been excluded. He would have been kept in the outermost court of the temple, called the, the court of the Gentiles. If you know your, 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 your temple architecture, assuming that you do, so I'll share this with you. The temple was like a series of, of concentric circles or boxes within boxes. The outermost court was the court of the Gentiles, which is where eunuchs and everybody and anybody could be. It's where the market was, pretty much. 
the next box or the next enclosed area was the court of Jewish women. Jewish women could be there. Okay. Everybody except for Gentiles and eunuchs, ostensibly. The next court, and keep in mind, as you go further and further in, you're getting closer and closer to the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary where the Ark of the Covenant is kept and the, and the Shekinah glory, the presence of the Most High resides over the altar all day and night, we're told. So in the, in, in the, in the next level in, that is the place where only Jewish men can be. Right? The women can't be there. The Gentiles can't be, you know, and then you go another step in and only the priests can be there and you go the final step in and that's the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest can go there behind the curtain and only, and he can only go there once a year on the day of atonement. And he must perform a series of ritual washings and purity rites so that he himself as a human being can enter into the presence of the Lord. All right. So this, this Ethiopian eunuch is just coming back from Jerusalem where he would have experienced being excluded from the community. He would have been kept in the outermost court. He would not have been allowed further. And so he's returning home from this experience of being excluded. And he's reading this passage in his chariot from the book of Isaiah and the passage he's reading is about a, a humiliated man who was denied justice, right? In his humiliation, the text says, in his, hum, in his humiliation, justice was denied him. You get the feeling that he's reading this passage and feeling some things. He's, he's resonating, we would say, with it. And so he asks Philip, who is this passage referring to? Is, Philip says, wow, this, now of course, Isaiah, in my opinion, wasn't writing about Jesus, but nevertheless, it was translated, interpreted into Christian tradition as such. Philip says, this man is in fact Jesus of Nazareth, God incarnate, who was the fulfillment of the Mosaic law. Basically, he shares with him the good news. I'm adding this in here that this is what Philip might have said, but nevertheless, he shares with him that the passage is talking about Jesus. And that he, as an Ethiopian eunuch, is welcome to become his disciple. This humiliated man who is denied justice. And the Ethiopian eunuch is like, oh, this is great. There's water right now by the side of the road. What's to prevent me from becoming his disciple, from being baptized? What's to prevent me from joining this movement right here, right now? Philip says nothing, and he baptizes him. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Again, you get the feeling that the, that the eunuch, the Ethiopian, this, this queer black man who had been ostracized for his sexual and perhaps even his racial identity, you get the feeling that this man deeply identified with these words. How many people of color and LGBTQ folks today can identify with these words? In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. 
How many people of color and LGBTQ folks today can identify with these words? For they too know what it is to be humiliated and denied justice and to have their life taken away from them by the powers that be simply because of who they are. And I think this man wanted to become a Christian that day because he found in the humiliated and suffering Christ, this Jesus who was denied justice, he found a God he could believe in and a God who identified with him in his sufferings. Therefore, to be Jesus' disciple, it seems to me, we are to welcome and bless those, include those, stand in solidarity with those who have been labeled unclean and unworthy by both religion and society for their sexuality, their, their race, their color, whatever. To be a Christian, to be a disciple of Christ means to stand in solidarity with the humiliated ones. With those who have, been not, who have been denied justice for their racial, sexual, or gender identity, just as Jesus did. Consider how Jesus upended, we might even say destroyed, people's conceptions of holiness and purity in his day. Consider how he did this in so many ways. He did this first by befriending and identifying most with the poor, the infirmed the sick, the Samaritans, the sex workers, the tax collectors, the, the outcasts and the misfits, and all those whom religion and society had labeled unclean and unholy because of their social location. He identified, and he identified most with them and preferred them, surrounded himself by them, the incarnation itself, consider the incarnation, this idea of God becoming flesh. Consider how the incarnation subverts concepts of holiness and purity back then. The very idea of God being incarnated into a dusty, smelly human body was a deep violation of their purity laws. Right? God's presence supposedly dwelled in the innermost center Sanctuary of the temple, the Holy of Holies, where no one could go except the high priest, again, only once a year, and only after he performed all these purification rites, right? God's presence was that holy. God's spirit was that holy. And yet, in the incarnation, we're told that God's spirit now inhabits this, this human being, this, this dusty, smelly human being, a peasant, no less, a peasant nobody from the backwaters of Galilee, Nazareth? Really? This idea was deeply offensive for ancient Jewish sensibilities, we would say, or ancient Hebrew sensibilities at the time. It was unthinkable from their tradition. It was blasphemous even, this idea. Consider also the fact that Jesus, God's Holy One, touched lepers and people with various ailments and infirmities and disabilities, all of this was taboo back then. And as a way of defiling 
oneself, defiling the holy, the idea that this is God doing this, touching and being touched by that which is unclean, deeply offensive. But the coup de grace really has to be the crucifixion, where Jesus is stripped naked and hung on a tree, crucified. The ultimate degradation and humiliation from the, from the traditional Hebrew perspective that he grew up in. The book of Deuteronomy says, cursed of God is anyone who is hung on a tree. Cursed of God is anyone hung on a tree. Jesus' entire life, his entire ministry, and even his body itself was this mixture of the, of the profane and the holy, the sacred and the vulgar. And this mixture meant, I believe, that God was doing away with or redefining our concepts of holiness and purity, our concepts of godliness and righteousness. It was a deep affirmation of this body, this life, this world, and each other, and those whom we traditionally have seen as excluded and ungodly and impure are declared holy and pure. One of the major themes of the books of, book of Acts, which our text today comes out of, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, one of the major themes of that book is this line found in there, do not call unclean what the Lord has made clean. Do not call on, meaning those people whom society or the religious powers that be have called unclean, do not call them unclean whom the Lord has made clean. That's a major theme of the book of Acts and, of course, the gospel itself. And for this reason, I believe the gospel should be understood in large part as the queering of God. Jesus queered God, you could say. Jesus revealed, in other words, that God didn't just prefer the so-called queer ones, the so-called misfits, the so-called outsiders and transgressors, but that God herself, their self, is queer and non-conformative, transgressive. God doesn't play by our rules, and he certainly she certainly doesn't play by the rules of rigid religion and the power brokers and the status quo, so-called good society. This, to me, is the real power. And the underlying message of the Ethiopian eunuch story and the real power and the underlying message of the gospel and it's liberating, and it's life-giving, and it's affirming for all those on the margins of society, particularly our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. And to them today, I want to say this. Your love, your body, your gender, and your sexual identity is holy. It is good. It is beautiful. And it is godly and divine. You are fully affirmed, fully accepted, not just by us, but by God herself, their self. Amen.
Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. Thanks. Um, sometimes I think about the story of Adam and Eve when Eve was taken from Adam's flesh. That if people think that's a literal thing, could, could it be say that Adam was intersexed because Eve came from Adam? Where did Eve get her feminine traits? Yeah. And um, where did Adam or get his feminine traits and masculine? So if it's, I don't know if you ever thought about Adam being I've, I've heard that before now yeah. as you know Randy I don't read that story in any kind of historical yeah uh literal fashion it's 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 a story it's 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 poetry it's myth meant to speak of um deeper truths about how people back then understood you know their place in the world their identity how they understood God you know their metaphysics their worldview but I have heard that before, that idea, which is if you're a conservative and you do read that story, literally, it does raise that question. You know, how can a man give birth, give birth? in a way he gave birth to, to Eve? Right? Um, yeah, you know, it's a good. I've also I think I talked about this last week. The idea of the virgin birth um, also raises questions about Mary's status as being trans or intersex. And then, of course, this idea of Jesus you know, not having an earthly father, where did he get his Y chromosome, right? And we now know from, from science, right, that some people are born uh, phenotypically male, meaning having male genitalia, but genotypically female, meaning having two X chromosomes. That's actually a thing. And it's one of the ways you can be born intersex. So was Jesus intersex? We don't, you know, if you read this, if you read the virgin birth, literally, you, you can say, well, Jesus was born, at least we know, phenotypically male, he had male genitalia, he appeared to be a man, but we don't, you don't know his genotype, he could have been born with two X chromosomes, because he came from a woman, where the Y chromosome come from, right? Well, say, they would say, a uh, conservative would say, well, God must have put the Y chromosome in there miraculously, just as, you know, he created Jesus miraculously, you know, well, you don't know that Jesus could have had two X chromosomes. People are born today with two X chromosomes who have male genitalia and other male features. Yeah. These are all ways of problematizing the text, which is fun. <laughs> um, and subverting, um, yeah, those, 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 you know, rigid understandings of sex and gender. Yeah. Um, that's a quick question. Um, who was Isaiah referring to in the passage that the eunuch was reading? Yeah, that's a great question. I think probably there's. I think general scholarly consensus. When I say general scholarly consensus, uh, I'm most scholars would say that he was speaking of himself or the nation itself. In his in his humiliation, justice was denied him. Uh, it's possibly speaking of himself because he, of course, suffered at the hands of the people for being a prophet. 
Um, we tradition holds that he was sawn in two. Um, but sometimes when when he's throughout the book of Isaiah, there is this reoccurring theme of the suffering servant. Okay. And that suffering servant has can be understood both as Isaiah the prophet, but also the the nation itself, Israel itself was the suffering servant. And and, and there's great reasons to think that when you actually read read the book. Um that it's apparent he's speaking sometimes that the nation itself is the suffering servant of the Lord right? and is suffering unjustly and that God will redeem Israel accordingly. And other times he uh, seems to be speaking of himself. But of course, this raises questions. Well, then why would early Christians who were Jews read Jesus into that story? And did they understand that literally? And, and that's a great question because I think I personally think that they understood the text in a variety of different ways. They saw it as fluid and flexible, and that Jesus of Nazareth, in a way, represented the nation. You know, Jesus being crucified on the cross was deeply symbolic of the nation itself being crucified under Roman rule, right? Jesus suffering on behalf of the nation. In a sense, he was the embodiment of the, of the nation itself suffering under Roman rule unjustly even. Yeah. But again, that raises all these cool questions about how the ancients read the text and used the text. Did they understand it in the hyper-literal way that conservative conservatives do? No, I don't think so. Yeah, it's interesting. I've read somewhere that where it says um, a virgin shall conceive the original text yeah. at a young woman. And when did that change the virgin? Was yeah, it, that's good. Yeah, and honestly, that's one of the many problems with doing uh, translations from ancient languages into modern English. Every translation is by definition also an interpretation. You were never just, it's never this, this simple act. It's always an act of interpretation when you're translating, you know, from one language to another. Even modern languages, every, you know. You think about translating words from Spanish into English, any, any fluent Spanish speaker, um, someone who grew up in a culture that spoke Spanish will tell you there's just some words that don't translate. Like in, in, in any language, Japanese, German, there's just certain concepts and ideas that really don't translate well into English. Those are modern languages that share the same world, the same time in history. Can you imagine? Koine Greek, which is what you know the New Testament was written in, that's a dead language. No one speaks it anymore. We're, we're basically... I don't want to say guessing because we're not, but the idea that there aren't major discrepancies between these deep spiritual words like faith, you know, um, and, and other metaphysical, supernatural, or whatever spiritual words in that text. Do we really understand what it meant back then? I don't know. But again, that shouldn't be, in my opinion, a stressor for us. That should be a, a wonderful opportunity, an invitation to ask ourselves, you know, what is... What is the spirit of love, the spirit of God doing today in our midst? Yeah, the text is cool. The Bible's cool, I guess. You know it is. But it but it's not, didn't fall out of heaven one day, and we shouldn't worship it, right? We, you know, in a sense, we, we need to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be the people of God today? Not what does Leviticus tell us to do, or even Romans, right? What does it mean for us to be the people of God today? to embody Christ's virtues of love and compassion and self-sacrifice and justice and care for the least of these. What does it mean for us to do that, to embody the word of God, meaning Jesus, today? It's a better question than, well, what, is, what does Leviticus say in Romans and we got to follow that, damn it? 
now? Anyway, great, great question. Other comments or thoughts? Oh, sorry. Uh, Randy, would you pass that to Anna, please? Um, nothing new, just remarking on what you had said, just juxtaposing Jesus to, um, I appreciate the, the temple architectural breakdown. It's just Jesus didn't seek out purity, like in any way, shape or form, it seems like. And I guess I'm wondering who, obviously those in power, the Jewish men, like who instructed them or how they created this temple structure. They obviously have a vested interest in exclusivity and like really rigid religious lines, like you're on the farthest and like health you know, rigid lines like, oh, you have a blemish or you can't be in here. And then gender, you know, et cetera. Um, it's just, I don't know that the exclu exclusivity is so attractive to those people in power. Um, and I don't know, like people just go along with it, like the culture, because really the priest and the priesthood is just such a minority and you have all the non-Jewish people and all the women. And it's just, I don't know. Everyone just has to accept it, I guess. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I don't have a really good answer um, as far as where did this all develop out of um, the, the temple architecture and these ideas of, you know, purity and exclusivity and the need to set things apart. The, the temple architecture itself is laid out in the, in the, in the Torah, in in the uh, in the five books of Moses, I believe, um, forget which book, but it is laid out. At least the architecture of the tabernacle, which was the pre-temple, you know, tent gathering place. There is, and that was when Israel was um, uh, during the Exodus, um, during during the Exodus travails. Um, but that was a really good question. And, you know, to be honest, I think a lot of it is generated. Some of it you find in other, a lot of it you find in other religions, this idea that, that you know, there's, there's holy ground, there's sacred space. You find this in a lot of different cultures and world religions that we, we as human beings, I think there can be something beautiful about it, even, you know, that this need to set aside certain things, certain traditions, certain spaces as unique and important and to be revered because it can be beautiful to do that, you know, even as like families and having holidays and certain days of the week that we celebrate and write like birthdays, that's kind of holy, that's kind of sacred in a way, right? But it's in a non-oppressive way, you know, like if we don't, if you don't recognize your birthday or if we don't celebrate it in the right way, you're going to hell, which is preposterous. But there can be a beautiful way of doing that. But um yeah, anyway, getting back to the ancient Israelites or the Hebrews, my understanding is that they really wanted to set themselves apart from their neighbors and the neighboring religions, which they saw as, you know, idolatrous and evil. And, you know, there was child sacrifices going on. And I I think in a way that they wanted, and, and they had this idea that they were set apart by God, their God, for a special purpose in the world. And so there became this need to create that sense of us and them, right? The the holy and the unholy, the the sacred and the profane, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think some of that came up. I'm not, I don't really know. Does anybody know any, any better answer than the one I just gave? Any scholars? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. Yeah. What is your name? 
Ryan, welcome. Not like a scholarly answer, but um, their, from my understanding, their culture and most cultures at that time uh, were honor shame rather than like guilt innocence um, or you know other cultural dynamics. And um, I heard one preacher or speaker talking about how in at least in their kind of version of honor shame um dishonor and like the the purity stuff was something external to be avoided rather than something internal to be acknowledged like the idea of like they didn't have an idea of the um the spiritual as this like other dimension of being which is why when Jesus talks about the incarnation or pre-existent, uh, pre-existing before carnation or afterwards or heaven and hell and a lot of the ways that we think are very normal, uh, the Israelites and the Jewish leaders are very, very offended because they didn't have a conception of that. Um, like the resurrection would be all of the people physically resurrecting when God comes back, not to them like some kind of spiritual resurrection. So this component of the spiritual and I think the internal very foreign to them. Um, and so if the idea of the internal and like the, the like sin and internal or a personal or individual thing really around back then, then it would make sense to that sin would become external, potentially even communal or societal. And so it would be something to avoid. Uh, and that just leads to exclusivity. So not scholarly, but that's just kind of, no, I think that's good. I think that's right. And I think on a deeper psychological level, Anna, I think we can understand where a lot of this comes from because it is kind of universal across culture and time, th this idea of, you know, the scapegoat, right? This, this idea that some things are unholy and, and we have to appease a deity through sacrifice, right? There has to be some kind of scapegoat. There needs to be some, we have to have boundaries set up and a kind of a religious structure that helps us you know, deal with the unclean, the impure. And I think on a psychological level, it all gets back to, Ryan, you were just reminding me of this, um, that as human beings, as these conscious, sentient, intelligent beings, but also with these kind of like um, deep kind of like psychological dynamics, we, we fear death. And, and we fear suffering, uniquely so. And we look for ways of coping with that and, and scapegoating and creating these binaries between the sacred and the profane and these holy spaces and these unholy spaces becomes a way for us to control what is fundamentally uncontrollable about ourselves and the world. And the hope that perf by performing magic, religious rituals, like scapegoating and, and, honor, and honoring the, the holy divine, we can be, we can achieve catharsis. We can have relief from these antagonisms of life and being and suffering and death. And so I think the reason, the underlying psychological reason, and this isn't me talking, this is actually scholars like Peter Rollins and, and Rene Girard and others who have really uh, looked into this, the underlying mechanism behind needing dividing to divide the profane from the, um, from the, what am I trying to say? The non-profane, you know, the holy from the unholy, the sacred and the vulgar is, is about achieving control over suffering and death and the antagonisms innate to being human. Um, does that make sense? Does that make sense? And the, to break that down, to say that what is what we've called unclean and unholy is really clean and holy is to make peace 
with, with the nature of life as it really is and our bodies and ourselves and to, in essence, embrace each other and embrace life in all of its frailty and all of its problems and to say, you know what, this is divine, this is holy. We don't, we don't need to oppress ourselves and others to achieve catharsis. We can find catharsis and relief and transcendence, whatever you want to call it, here and now by embracing reality, as hard as that is. Make peace with the truth of our lives, that we're, that we're broken, we're finite. We, we don't have the answers. We're immersed in mystery and unknowing. Life is hard. We're not okay. By accepting those things, by making peace with those things, we can, we can kind of find a sort of wholeness. We can be okay not being okay. Does that make sense? That's kind of like the, the turn here. But by, by embracing the flesh is divine, this idea that God is here, God is now, or God is our neighbor in need. Christ is the broken, the afflicted one among us. You know, that, those barriers that religion and society sets up between the profane and the holy are, are shattered and all is made holy. All is, all, God is everywhere. All right. That's the awesome move here. But you got to be willing to let go of the scapegoat mechanism. And, and that's hard for a lot of people because that provides, again, that sense of we're the ones with the answers. Our religion's right. Everybody else is wrong. You have to come here in order to get right with God. Tithe to this church, right? Because we're holy and God will bless you back. You know, you got you to gotta worship the calf, you know? No. No. You are, we are liberated from that oppressive system. And that's the gospel too. The Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch is holy. That would do not call unclean what the Lord has made clean. All is made clean. You are liberated. You know, that's the gospel. Anyway, that's a really good question. <laughs> that's a long answer to a good question. Yeah. All right. Any other comments or questions today? Yeah, Leanne. Just really quick, going back to the topic of intersexuality. Um, I don't know if anyone's read this, but I recommend a book. It's by Ursula K. Le Guin, who is, uh, was a very accomplished science fiction writer. And she wrote a book called The Left Hand of Darkness. Um, and in the story, um, this man visits a planet where everyone is hermaphroditic. And it's like in the story, once a month, kind of like a menstrual cycle, like their body changes and they become either male or female for a certain amount of time. And then they kind of go back to being neither. And so this, it's a story of a man who, like a man from earth who um, comes to this planet and um, for other plot reasons, but is living among these people. Um, and it's just, I mean, it's an incredible book, but also just like, exploring this idea of like you know intersexuality and hermaphrodism and like all the people he meets are both male and female and it's just really like it's about also his mind opening up from this binary way of thinking about gender and about um these things so it's also just an incredible bit of writing so uh, the left hand of darkness by ursula lagine um very much recommended especially with this discussion that's awesome. Um, and just this week, for those of you who want a piece of recent news, <laughs> uh, it turns out that a crocodile in captivity, a female crocodile laid eggs that were viable without a, a male crocodile being present. It's called parthogenesis. And it's rare, but it happens in nature. So 
anyway, all that's this, if we want to problematize these kind of rigid conservative understandings that like, nope, there's a binary, you're either male or female, you know, men can't have babies or, you know, stuff like that. Like, no, nature itself is complicated <laughs> and, and does these wonderfully bizarre things and that breaks these boundaries. Anyway, that's a really good point. You reminded me of uh, a friend of mine posted about it. He posted the article and he said, in the name of the father, the son, and the holy crocodile. <laughs> instead of Holy Spirit. All right. Anyway, well, good stuff, everybody. Let us conclude our time together with this joint benediction. Will you say this together with me now? As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. All right, friends, go in peace. Thanks for being here. And thank you to all of you who joined us via Zoom. See you next time. Mm -hmm.